and welcome to the podcast that helps you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Today, we continue our series, Forging Attitudes That Point to Jesus, by examining the second beatitude, which is about as countercultural as you can get. Welcome to season number one, episode number nine of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle, and episode number nine is entitled Cultivating a Heart Like Jesus Had. This podcast focuses on our mission. Since becoming like Christ is foundational to our mission, we've been studying these attitudes as Jesus described them in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we come to Matthew 5 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. When we realize that blessedness, as we saw last week, makarios, refers to heart satisfaction, to well-being and joy, the startling paradox of Jesus' words in this beatitude become apparent. It is as if he is saying, happy are the unhappy, happy are the miserable, happy are the sad. So we, went, so we must ask, what kind of sorrow can it be that Christ wants us to experience and which brings the joy of Christ's blessing? Let me say emphatically that Jesus is not talking about human pain in general. He is not a masochist. He is not talking about the sadness of losing a football game or not getting offered the job. He's not talking about the sorrow that comes when your mate divorces you. He's not talking about the grief of losing a loved one. He is talking about the grief of repentance. He's talking about godly sorrow over sin and the devastation that it brings. We know this is the kind of mourning Jesus has in mind for two reasons. The first is the context. The first beatitude is about acknowledging our spiritual poverty as those enslaved by sin. The second beatitude quite naturally follows, that is, grieving and mourning over that spiritual poverty, that sinful tendency. Using theological terms, we say the first beatitude is about confession. The second beatitude is about contrition. The first beatitude is about our mind acknowledging sin. The second beatitude is about our heart grieving over that sin. The second reason we know that the sorrow Jesus commends here is the grief over sin is the verb tense of that verb, mourn. The verb tense indicates habitual action, a regular mourning that is part of everyday life. It's unlikely that Jesus was saying, happy are those who must go through the agony of losing a loved one over and over again. It is more likely that he was referring to those who deeply grieve over their sins as a regular part of their walk with him. This attitude of mourning over sin is explained by James in his epistle, who writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will exalt you. It's our attitude towards sin that James and Jesus are concerned about. When thinking about having the right attitude, it's helpful to realize that our attitude is always determined by our perspective. For example, if I am on my phone crossing the street and a stranger grabs me, shoving me to the street where I tear my pants and cut my knee, my attitude will be anger until a split second later I see a Mack truck go flying over the spot on the road where I was just standing. With that perspective, my heart attitude changes from anger to being grateful. So attitude is about perspective. The godly sorrow that Jesus talks about results from changing our perspective about sin. Here are three ways our perspective has to change. First, the godly sorrow Jesus calls us to results from owning my sin. David wrote, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The normal human response to accusations is not to take responsibility for our sin, but to deny it, excuse it, rationalize it, or minimize it. We are, after all, children of Adam, whose first response to God's accusation was, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. And of Eve, whose response was, the serpent gave me the fruit. But spiritual health, and that's what makarios and blessedness is portraying in the Sermon on the Mount, begins with taking responsibility for our actions. Christian counselors Cloud and Townsend, in their excellent book, Boundaries with Kids, write, one of the hallmarks of maturity is taking responsibility for one's own life, desires, and problems. If we show up late for work, we don't blame the freeway. If we want to advance our career, we take courses. If we are angry, we deal with whatever makes us angry instead of waiting for someone to soothe our feelings. Mature adults see themselves as problem solvers instead of trying to find someone else to blame or solve problems for them. Immature people experience life as victims and constantly want someone else to blame or solve their problems. As Christ followers and just healthy human beings, we need to own our sin. The second perspective that will produce godly sorrow for our sin is this. I need to stop seeing my sin primarily as breaking a rule and start seeing my sin as the violating of a relationship, namely my relationship with God. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules. It's not even primarily a way of life. It is primarily about a relationship. From the beginning, God's covenant with his people has been a relational one, one of belonging to each other. The covenant essence is, I will be your God and you will be my people, belonging. And 
keeping his commandments has always been personal with God. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, we read, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Jesus repeated the same principle. If you love me, said Jesus, you will keep my commandments. God puts a relational context around the issue of our obedience or disobedience to his moral law. Our sin is not just a matter of breaking an impersonal rule. It is a violation of our relationship with God. David understood that his sin against God was personal. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, he confessed his sin with these words, Against you, Lord, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Hide your face from my sins. These words are remarkable since he had also sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. Yet he saw his sin almost entirely as a matter of disloyalty to his God. When you violate a rule, your conscience bothers you maybe, and you might confess it, but it's no big deal. But when you violate a person because of your sin, especially a person who is very precious to you, it tears you up inside. This is the grief Jesus is talking about. It's the result of remembering that when I sin, I wound the very heart of my God with my disloyalty to him. I grieve the heart of my Savior. I bring shame on his name because I bear his name as a Christ one. I trample into the mud the precious blood of Jesus shed for me. Well, the third perspective we need to mourn the way Jesus wants us to is to realize the price tag of sin. In Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we see in Jesus a heart that mourns over the cost of Jerusalem's sin. We read, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus foresaw the eventual destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that would come as a result of Jerusalem's rejection of him, and he wept over those consequences. Their sinful, hardened hearts had caused them to refuse to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and he saw the destruction that would bring into their lives and wept. Kingdom people, says Jesus, are those who inwardly weep over sin, their own sin, and the sin of others. Sin is spiritual cancer. It always destroys. The wage it always pays is spiritual, emotional, physical destruction. Paul wrote to the Galatians, do not be deceived. 
Why did he write that? Because we are deceived. But he continues, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own sinful nature will from that nature reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from that Spirit reap life that is eternal. There are many ways that we can respond to evil in our culture. First, we can envy those who seem to get away with violating God's law, like couples in love who just sleep with each other instead of fighting the tough battle to wait until marriage for sex, or the non-tithing neighbor who just bought that Jaguar convertible because he could afford it. Number two, we can be judgmental toward the sinners around us who don't go to church, use bad language, sleep around, corrupt the morals of our kids, and so forth. Third, we can be angry and hostile toward this, for example, sexually broken members of the LGBTQ community, especially the social activists who are ruining our country by pushing their destructive, immoral agenda. We need to stand against their efforts. But when Christ reigns in our hearts, our attitude towards evil in the world is to weep. Weep over our own awful disloyalty to our Creator and Lord, and weep over the horrible devastation and pain that sin brings into the lives of others. John Stott, in his book, Christian Counterculture, writes, Jesus wept over the sins of others, over their bitter consequences in judgment and death, and over the impenitent city which would not receive him. We too should weep over the evil in the world, as did the godly men of biblical times. My eyes shed streams of tears, the psalmist could say to God, because men do not keep your law. Ezekiel heard God's faithful people described as those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. If we would be like Jesus, we must be hostile towards evil. In the second half of the Beatitude, we read that part of the blessing for this kind of mourning is being comforted. What does Jesus mean by this statement? I believe that Scripture teaches that God himself will comfort us, and he will comfort us in three ways. First, we'll be comforted by the Lord by total, complete forgiveness. For the one who has owned up to his sin with a contrite heart, recognizing his spiritual poverty and need of the shed blood of Christ to cleanse him from his sin, there is total forgiveness. We are doubly declared righteous, that is, justified. Christ followers trust Christ's death as payment for the punishment we deserve. The law has no further claim against us because our debt is paid. But also, Christ's perfect life of obedience is imputed to us, meaning that at the top of Christ's straight-A moral report card, his name is erased and ours is written in. The judge of the universe has declared us doubly righteous in the eyes of the law. Obedience to the first half of the Beatitude, deeply grieving over our sin, must be accompanied by celebrating the second half of the Beatitude, We are comforted by the judge of the universe who says to us, your sin is completely forgiven. 
And as we saw last week in the story of the prostitute washing Jesus' feet with her tears, one who is forgiven much loves much. Much forgiveness from Christ means much love for Christ. The second way God comforts us is giving us hope that God will still weave together the dark threads of our sin into a beautiful tapestry that glorifies him. Our comfort lies not only in forgiveness, but in the fact that even though every decision we have made to disregard God's law has brought destruction into our lives, if we repent, God has given us his amazing promise to turn those ugly scars into beauty marks. Jesus came not just to forgive, but to restore, beginning his ministry by reading the great messianic text, Isaiah 61, that describes his ministry of restoration. Notice the words comfort and mourn in this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. No matter how badly we mess up, God can put our lives back together again. The third way God comforts us is with the joy of our future destiny when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The more sin breaks our hearts because of its destruction in our loved ones, in our world, and in our own hearts, the more precious is the truth that it doesn't win. John, in his great vision of the destiny of those who belong to Christ, wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So in the second beatitude, Jesus says to us, Oh, the bliss of those who mourn over sin. Knowing that when we sin, we don't break God's law so much as God's law breaks us. But they will not despair, but find great comfort, knowing that Christ has come to fix everything broken by sin. To summarize, in this episode, we saw what a Christ follower's attitude towards sin is to be. 
We are not to envy the lost who break God's moral laws, be judgmental towards them, or hostile toward those whose sinful ways corrupt our culture. Instead, we are to weep for our own evil disloyalty to our Savior and for the devastation experienced by those who were enslaved by sin. It is in the midst of such tears that the truth that Jesus came to restore all things broken by sin becomes more precious. For further thought, you might ask yourself these two questions. First, why is our rebellion against the one who gave his life for us so evil? Why is it so wrong? Number two, what categories of sinful people do you find yourself envying, judging, or hostile towards? And how do you think sin is rotting their lives from within? In our next episode, we will continue our four-part series, Forging Attitudes That Point to Jesus, by taking a close look at the third beatitude, which is the key to overcoming worry and selfish anger. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission to honor Christ with their lives.